If you would, using your pew Bibles or scriptures you brought with you, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 12. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. If you were here with us last week, Paul talked about in the first half or the first 11 verses uh, of this thing, of this chapter, uh, it matters what you set your mind on. Uh, We have a new status in Christ. We are in the Spirit And Paul encouraging us to to live according to that spirit, to have the mindset of the spirit. And it's like he is warning us, if you continue on in in the flesh, uh, you'll only frustrate things. Or only the thing that is for you there is is destruction, that you will self-destruct. You'll get involved in things that are only going to bring you harm. As an example, let me take you back to 1994. And what I'm going to tell you is kind of an extreme example, but I think it drives home the point. 1994 was the year of probably one of the the worst uh, sporting scandals that there ever was. It was in the world of figure skating, okay? Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding. You'll remember those names, 1984. What happened was Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, both um, Olympic qualifying figure skaters, excellent at what they do. Nancy Kerrigan, um, Olympics still haven't started yet. This is sometime before that. She's coming off the ice uh, after a practice or something to that effect, and she's moving back into the into her dressing room to change, and there's crowds of people there in the hallways as she's moving through there, and somebody comes uh, seemingly out of nowhere, either with a crowbar or with a pipe or something to that effect, and uh, swings at her knee and uh, doesn't break her kneecap, doesn't break any bones, but some significant damage to her leg. And so all of a sudden, Nancy Kerrigan is on the floor in this hallway, the skating rink, crying out in pain because of what somebody had done to her. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't expect this kind of stuff in figure, the world of figure skating, okay? I don't have a lot of history of figure skating, but this kind of seems odd to me that somebody would, would do this. And so it kind of grabbed the headlines. What is going on here? Why is this happening? And the police get involved and investigations begin. And it turns out that the eyes started looking a little bit closer at, at Tanya Harding, one of her, Nancy Kerrigan's um, teammates, you might say, and, and competitors in, in the Olympics. And they begin to look at her and they look at the, those that are kind of associated with Tanya Harding. And they key in on... Uh, Harding's uh, bodyguards and uh, her boyfriend or, or husband, I believe, Jeff, Jeff Galuli. Okay, now that, that just sounds like trouble to me, Jeff Galuli. And uh, they they kind of harbor in on him and focus in on him. And I think it's the, the bodyguard that kind of opens up and kind of spills the beans of what's happening here. Uh, apparently, Galuli had hired some people to go after Kerrigan so as to improve Tanya Harding's chances in the Olympics. I mean, if you win the, win the gold in the Olympics, you're kind of set for life. I mean, you're, you're going to do well after that. There's a lot of security and fame and, and fortune that are attached with that. And apparently, Galuli was working in the background to orchestrate some better odds for um, Tanya Harding. And so the... Uh, focus begins to drive in on Tanya Harding and, and all her associates, but the Olympics still come, and uh, it, the Olympics come and go, and it doesn't, at the end of the story, is that nobody in this story ends up doing well. Uh, Kerrigan does perform or does 
compete in the Olympics. Uh, she does great. I mean, she's able to rehab, do this fast rehab. She's able to, to compete for the gold. And some would say she had probably one of her best performances um, on the ice. But it seemed like the judges were just not into it. They were tired of the drama about uh, what happened off the, off the ice, so to speak. And she got, and Kerrigan ended up walking away with the silver. Uh, Hardy, Tanya Harding did compete in the Olympics, um, but she couldn't get her act together, it seems. I mean, as you would imagine, just the, the weight, the drama, all the attention she's getting, all the accusations she's getting for her role with, with Nancy Kerrigan and all that drama, she just didn't do well at all. After the Olympics, she was uh, fined and put on a three-year probation for her involvement in the Kerrigan affair. And probably the, the worst news of all for her, the, probably the thing that probably killed her the most, was the, the figure stating uh, association. They, they pulled her license. They kicked her out and they said, that you are no longer welcome here. You, you are complete, we want nothing to do with you anymore. And she couldn't skate and be uh, a professional uh, in that capacity anymore, and you know it just totally destroyed her. Because to get to the Olympics, that has to dominate your life for a long time, and surely it dominated her life. Practice all the time, living for this moment to be in the Olympics, only to have it end in just this disaster. Now, I know that's an, it's, that's an extreme example, but Paul in this chapter is saying, be careful what you set your mind on be careful what you focus upon. Be careful what your mindset is, because if it's not on the right thing, it's going to lead to destruction. It's only going to harm you. And Paul is continuing that argument about the Spirit and his role and his power in our lives. So as you're able, why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Let's read this together. God's Word to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, your love does not leave us alone. Your love pursues us. Your love comes after us. It's not for the moment. It's not for a period of time, but it is steadfast, immovable, always and forever love. Would we receive this word to us as your love? And would you give us wisdom and insight to uh, see its application in our lives? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? I do want to jump right into this passage and to say where we are going with it. Uh, It's clear that this passage is communicating to us and teaching us about the role of the Spirit in our lives, what it means to have him there as believers. And there's two things, quite simply, I want us to focus on. 
I want to look at, first of all, how the Spirit helps us find joy, how the Spirit helps us find joy. And then I want to look at, uh, the second point is, how the Spirit helps us find assurance or security, okay? Joy and assurance, how the Spirit helps us with those two things. So first, how, the, how we find uh, joy. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that there, for the believer, is a life of joy, a joy of peace, a joy of, of rest, a joy of satisfaction, a joy of abundance, if you will. But the thing that uh, keeps us from that is not our circumstances, it's not our personalities, it's not our situations, it's not our, our resources that we have or don't have, it's not our education, but the thing that's going to limit that joy in our lives is, quite frankly and simply, is sin. And Paul makes this point clear, and that's why he goes into this details, talking about how we deal with our sin, I think, in this passage. Uh, Look what he says again in verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, now pull back a moment from this this verse and think about this whole passage in more of its broader context. In verses 9 and 10 and in other spots up until this point, Paul has said to us, if you belong to Christ, you've put your faith in Christ, then you are righteous in his sight, that you have a new status, that you've been born again, that you belong to him, and the Spirit is the, the one that has come and made that truth a reality in our lives. He's made us spiritually alive, and we belong to him. There is something different about us. But even though we belong to Christ, even though we're accepted by him and righteous in his sight or justified, as he talks about in other places, there's still conflict. There's still tension. There's still sin in our lives that we have to deal with, that we have to process, that we have to work through. Think about it maybe like this. Imagine you have a living room, and in this living room, the light switch is a dimmer switch. And you know these dimmer switches, it's like a little slide on the wall that you turn it up all the way to the top, it's going to be real bright. If you turn it down to the, at the bottom, it's going to be real dim or it's going to be dark. And imagine you walk into a living room where there's a dimmer switch. And that dimmer switch is probably about halfway up on the switch there. And you walk in and you see, you can see a couch, you can see a coffee table, you can see lamps, you can see a couple chairs, you can see the carpet, uh, the throw carpet on the, on the floor there. And you know that there's no coffee cups and the the coffee table books are closed and they're sitting nice and neat there in the the middle, that there's some coasters over here and there's a lamp over here. And things look clean. They look picked up, look nice. And then you turn the dimmer switch up all the way and you walk into this room. And when you first walked in before, you thought, well, it was a nice room. But now you're starting to see that there's chipping on some of the furniture, that there's a lot of scratches that you didn't notice before on the coffee table. And you didn't see that, that water stain uh, on that uh, table that's sitting next to the couch. And the couch kind of looks threadbare, and there's some stains on the, on the carpet here and there. What's happened? That, that before the light switch was dim, it looked great, but now that the light is really bright, it doesn't look so great. It looks more roughed up, and it looks like it needs a lot of repair. Well, think about that dimmer switch as like the Holy Spirit in our lives. He first comes into our lives, we first start walking with him, and he shows us our sin, and we see some stuff that that we're able to clean up and and move past. But then that light gets brighter, 
And we see more stuff that needs to be dealt with. We see cracks in the paint, so to speak. We see the threadbare carpet in our lives. And that's helping us to see that, that there's a sense of hostility. You've been changed, yes. God has accepted you as perfect and as righteous, but there's still stuff that you're wrestling with, still stuff that you're trying to um, put aside and, and move past. And this is why we see Paul here in this passage talking about putting sin to death, laying it aside that those misdeeds of the body is how he puts it in this passage in verse 13. In other places, Paul talks about how we need to put sin to death like in Colossians. Uh, Theologians will call what Paul is talking about here mortification of sin, that we need to mortify our sin. And they get that from the King James translation of this verse in verse 13, where we need to mortify our sin or we need to put to death our sin. Jesus talks about mortification of sin like this. For example, in in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus uh, says this. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, does this literally mean that we need to uh, take a hatchet uh, to our hands or to our arms or to gouge out our eye? No. What he's emphasizing here is this is how important it is and how grave it is that you deal with your sin, that we deal with our own personal sin, that we cut it off, that we uh, put it to death in our lives. And so the quick response to this is maybe, well, how does that take place? What does it look like on a practical level to put our sin to death, to be killing it? Let me give you two steps. These are, these are brief kind of outline steps. The first step is that is there has to be a commitment to put sin to death. There has to be a commitment to put sin to death. This is what you might call repentance. This is, in a sense, saying that we are declaring war on sin in our lives that we're saying we are in conflict with sin, that we want to stand against it, that we don't want to give it a place in our lives when we see it, when we realize it, that we, want to, we don't want to give it safe harbor, that we don't want to, we don't want to be the type of people, let's, we can get close to it as, as, as much as possible without really it taking over our lives. It's the attitude that says, I can't manage my sin on my own, but I need God by his spirit to work in me and to show me those cracks in the paint, those chips that, that threadbare carpet in my life, and I need to change that and return away from that. The second step in mortification of sin is a commitment to living as a new person in Christ. This is faith. We're turning away from our old lives. We're turning towards and looking towards him. Uh, you can go back and look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes in the beginning there, he says, We have an obligation... Or we have a debt, some translations say. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. It's never, he doesn't say it flat out that our obligation is to the spirit, but it's assumed in this passage. Our obligation, what we owe is not to the flesh to live according to that, but our obligation is to live according to the spirit. According to what God has done in our lives, according to him and for him. That he becomes the, the, the focus of our desires, of our wants of our values, of our character. We, we take on upon that and we live by faith in him, being shaped by him. Now, maybe part of what drives this home that gives us uh, the motivation and the leverage and the, um, 
the force of this mortification in our lives is the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he takes God's truth and he doesn't just make it something general, a general concept, a, a, a thing of knowledge that's out there that, that we can have the answers to when asked and called upon in class, but he begins to make that truth personal. He makes that personal in our lives. Think about it like this. When I, we lived in Mississippi, I was a part of Rotary Club, and a Rotary Club meeting meets once a week, and there'll be a, a, we had a meal, but we also have a speaker. We come and talk about things in the community or things that were pertinent to, uh, to us that were living in, in this area. And one uh, Thursday luncheon, they had a patrol officer come in, and he came and talked about um, driver safety and highway safety. And it was kind of a modified PowerPoint presentation of what he does when he goes into the high schools and talks about driver safety. Certainly he talked about, um, you know, not, a, not driving while intoxicated. Uh, he had some video clips of, of car accidents and, and people, we were able to see what happens when a car actually crashes and the experience of that. And of course he talked about seatbelts, the importance of wearing your seatbelt. And he d- did say, you know, I know a lot of you are sitting in this room at this Rotary Club meeting. He was saying to them, and I know a lot of you are thinking, ah, seatbelts, it's not that big a deal. And, yeah, I know it's important, but whatever. He said, he said in effect that you can think that way, but you need to realize if you don't wear your seatbelt, not only are you a damage to yourself, you can bring harm to yourself, but you can damage, you can do some serious injury to people in the car. And he showed a couple of clips, and what happens is if you're not wearing your seatbelt and you're in a car that crashes, that means that you are like a missile in that car that's going to run into and hurt and hit other people in that car. There's a lot of damage you can do by doing that. And I walked away, and I remember talking with the fellows. We, we left and pulled out of the parking lot. I was like, man, I guess I better wear my seatbelt now and make sure I'm wearing it. It's pretty serious. And I think that message was a lot like many of us sometimes when we come out of church. It's like, oh, that was good or what he said. That's real helpful, and I, I need to do that, and that would be really good to see that more in my life. But the life happens, and we just kind of don't take it as seriously. It's just, that's nice advice, but, you know, you just kind of move on. But think about it like this. Say you had to go to the hospital because somebody you know and love, a good friend, has been involved in a car accident And you got into that hospital room, and you saw your buddy there laying on the bed. And there's wires, and there's all kinds of bandages. He's broken his arm. There's all kinds of cuts and bruises. I mean, he just looks horrible. And you tell him, it's like, buddy, you look horrible. He's like, I didn't have my seatbelt on, and this is what happened to me. I was lucky I didn't die. I got this concussion and broken arm and so on and so forth. You're going to walk out of that room, and you're going to think, I'm wearing my seatbelt. Because it's, because it's one thing to hear the truth. It's another thing to experience the implications of that truth. It's another thing to see your buddy laying in bed like that, almost dying after a car accident. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes it personal. He makes God truth, God's truth personal in our lives. He moves it beyond this just abstract kind of concept. It's like, yeah, I, need, I know I need to, to put sin to death. And these promises, those are nice. And these commandments, that's nice. And they're general kind of principles. But then the Holy Spirit comes in our life and he says, that's true of me. I don't need to be lying. I need to be a person of prayer. It's not a good idea, but it's important that I do it.
the Holy Spirit making that personal for us. And we begin to take God's word as true for us, that he's speaking to us. This matters for me, not for the person sitting next to me, not for my spouse, not for my neighbor, not for the culture at large. They really need to hear this truth. But the truth becomes our truth. God's promises become our promises. And we start to take God's word to heart for ourselves. And we start to put in this practice of putting sin to death, of repenting from it, embracing Christ by faith. That's how the Spirit leads us to joy and pursues it, gives us a life of joy because it's helping us deal with sin in our lives and pursuing him and knowing him. The second thing that the Spirit does is we find security or assurance in what he does in our lives. And the key to understanding this assurance or security is in the word adoption. Uh, verse 15, Paul writes, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. This idea of, of to find security, to find assurance in our faith, in our relationship with Christ, comes when we understand the concept of adoption, that you belong to him now. Not only are you forgiven of your sins when you came to Christ and put your faith and trust in him when you were born again, not only did that happen, but you also have been adopted into his family. You belong to him. You are one of his children. Is that how you see yourself in relating to God? Do you understand yourself as you are a child of God, that he loves you with an everlasting, always and forever love? And because that concept is so important, I think we need to drill down and look at some of the specifics that he gives us. There's, there's three things I want to look at, and then I'll close in prayer, and we'll move towards the, the Lord's table here. For starters, adoption gives us greater intimacy with God. Greater intimacy with God. Did you see how what Paul, the words that Paul uses there? Abba, Father. That we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. Father is a translation of a Greek word. Paul is writing to Greek speakers. He's writing originally in Greek, yet he slips this Aramaic word in. That Aramaic word certainly means father, but it's kind of more the, as you probably heard, it's the everyday language use of father. It means something more akin to dad or daddy. It's meant to communicate intimacy. It's meant to communicate closeness that's there. And so think about times when you've been around a town or you've walked around in like a fairground and you see a little child crying out uh, to his daddy or you've seen a little child reach up and grab his, his daddy's hand and he looks up into his eyes and there's a sense of, uh, of comfort, of trust, of assurance that you're my dad, you protect me, you watch over me. If I say your name, I know you're going to hear me and come towards me and help me. That's what Paul is communicating to us. We have that kind of security, that kind of uh, peace, that kind of confidence that he hears us. He knows your name. He knows your circumstances. He knows who you are and what you need and what you desire. And he's extending to you in the midst of that his presence, that you can call him Father, that you can come to him with all your needs. Nothing is too silly. Nothing is too trivial. Nothing is, is too deep or too emotional that he will not hear and want to understand what's happening and not want to answer. The second thing is adoption gives us assurance. Adoption gives us assurance. 
Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Somehow that we are able to cry out and call him Father, that the Spirit assures our spirit, assures us that we belong to him, that we are his. How important is that for us to know? How much storms in our heart and craziness that we feel in our circumstances, if we can know and be assured that we belong to God, that we are his children, that gives us strength to endure. He may not do it all the time. He may not do it consistently every time you bend and and, and pray down before him. But he will assure us by his word and by his presence in our lives that we belong to him. There's this incredible story in Acts chapter 4. It's the early church, okay? Jesus has just left. The disciples and the apostles are just doing, starting and engaging in the business of evangelism and planting churches and preaching the gospel to their, their peers and moving out from there. And these religious leaders approach some of the apostles and they say, you can't do that anymore. You can't be talking about Jesus. You can't be talking about this gospel as you call it. And if you keep doing it, you're going to be in big trouble. You keep doing it, we may have to end things on a, in a permanent way. The apostles go back. And they go back to the church and they gather the other believers. And what do they do? They pray. What do they pray for? Do they say, God, give us a better government? Uh, keep our kids safe? Uh, give us a, a new job so we can move away from here? They pray for boldness. They say, God, help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to who you are, to what you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. And then we read this in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God giving them assurance that they belong to him, that God is present, that God is going to minister in and through them. This is an... Maybe an extreme example. The Spirit here is promising us when we trust in Him, when we go to Him, He's going to assure us that we belong to Him. The last one adoption makes us heirs. Adoption makes us heirs. This is clear in verse 17. Paul says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. Author, Pastor Brian Chappell, talks about a time when he was invited to a party, and this was a very uh, well-to-do party. It was sponsored by the uh, owner of a chemical company. And so you had a lot of people at this uh, gathering with wine glasses and tuxedos and just jewelry and all kinds of a flash and just a very wealthy environment. And Chapel could handle himself in this environment, but he wasn't completely comfortable with it. It was a different crowd that he's used to, different... Uh, situations and circumstances. And so as he's there mingling and talking with other individuals, there's this one fellow that stuck out to him and somehow he found himself uh, next to him, talking to him and and engaging him in conversation. He was easy to talk with. He was easy. uh, He had an easy presence in this crowd, but he stuck out uh, because he was wearing like a flannel shirt, some jeans that were kind of roughed up and some work boots. And this was a place where everybody was dressed in suits and, and just looked uh, impeccable. Everybody's all shiny. And here he is wearing this flannel stuff. But yet you talk to him and it was like he was just like he blended in completely. Like there was nothing unusual about his dress or appearance at all. Fully confident, fully easy to talk to and, and get along with. 
And so Chapel talked to him for a little bit, and then he just kind of moseyed off, and they went their separate ways. And Chapel found out later on, well, that fellow he was talking to in the flannel and the jeans, he's the son of the guy that's sponsoring the party. He's the son of the, the guy that owns this chemical company. And what that father said to the son, he said, you know, you are going to have this great inheritance. You're going to have, you've got this incredible trust fund, but I want you to live in the real world for a little bit. And he says, you're not going to be able to draw from your trust fund. You're not going to be able to draw from anything that I'm able to give you. What you earn is what you have to live on. And I want you to have that real world experience for a number of, of years. And that explained a lot to Chapel. As he saw this individual walking the room and had this great confidence and, and uh, assuredness about him, he knew who he was. He knew he, he was an heir to this great fortune. He knew his name belonged to, and that gave him a confidence in that room despite his clothing, despite his day-to-day circumstance. You are an heir of Christ. Let that give you confidence as you live today. Let that give you confidence in the midst of your circumstances that may be uncertain. Let that give you confidence in the midst of your disappointments. Let that give you confidence in the tension that you feel maybe in some of your relationships or at work. At the end of the day, you belong to Christ. You belong to God. You are his heir. You have eternity ahead of you. Let that give you assurance and confidence and joy and peace in your life today. Would you pray with me? Father God, in these moments, as we think about your word, as we think about your truth, and as we think about your reality, we need to be reminded that we belong to you, that we are your people, that you have adopted us, that you love us with an everlasting, always and forever love. We are your children. You love to hear from us. You love to answer our prayers. You love to strengthen us. You love to change us. You love to work in a way for our good and your glory. Would you allow the reality of these words to sink into our hearts? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.